You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Talk about what we're going to do today. Okay. Um, so, as I said, I don't, um, what I want to do tonight is do a, a very brief introduction from a Gemara uh, that you may have heard before, a pretty wild Gemara, and see if it has something to actually to say about our text. Then we're going to do, uh, I think we've done several times before, I'm going to try and take a very, very large uh, overview of the whole story of Yaakov um, and raise some issues in that regard, probably pick up, all right, see if there is there is something that holds it together. Um, I'm going to use that as a an entree to something in the Rishonim, and then we're going to look at the Rishonim together and see if there's anything meaningful that comes out of it. You know, it might be that all we come out of it is... Uh, a set of questions that um, that can inform us in future years. So here's the Gemara, which you may have heard of. Rav Nachman and Rav Yitzchak and Rav Yitzchak were sitting in a meal together. Amar le Rav Nachman le Rav Yitzchak. Rav Nachman says to Rav Yitzchak, Mar Milsa, say something, right? Meaning, you know, give it to our Torah. Amar le, so he gave him, right, one of these classic rabbinic, uh, you know, sort of barbed of Torah. Hachi Amar Rav you're not allowed, right? Yochan said as following, you're not allowed to have a conversation during a meal. Because you might accidentally swallow food down the trachea, and you'll be endangered. All right, so that's a, right, that's, you know, you asked me for the Torah, but really it's us to give it to Torah uh, right now, right? This is the, you know, those, those kinds of reflexive divrei Torah are fun. Um, you know, where, where it's putting a person in their place for asking a question, that's uh, you, know, you can imagine all sorts of variants like this. I used to enjoy the the, the minor one, right, by getting up and saying before davening in in school that the you know, the halacha is that you have to say a halacha before davening, and then just sit down. Uh, right, so that's that kind of that kind of reflexive joke. Um, okay, so we don't know whether this is Rav Nachman you know, whether that's really Rav Nachman really means this, or whether Rav Yitzchak is for some reason trying. Not to say what Rav Nachman wants him to. We don't know why that is. But it turns out, it seems like he's just stolen because Basar de Saud, after they have the meal, in quiet, presumably, Amr Leich, he says to him, uh, I guess the similar line was, um, right, there's a story that um, JFK, when he first came to the Senate, he turned to the dean of the Senate, Carl something or other from Minnesota, I forget his name, and I think, I don't, maybe not Minnesota, and said, yeah, can you tell me how the Senate has changed you know, since you first came here? And the response was when I w- when I first came to the Senate, freshmen didn't whisper during right, um, during debates. Okay, um, so that's Rav, that, that's the nature of Rav Yitzchak's response from Nachum. Then, then later he says, "Hachi Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Yaakov Avinu lo meis." Here's another word from Yochanan. The other word from Yochanan is that Yaakov Avinu never died. Amarle. So right, so Rav Nachman says to Rav Yitzchak, "The chibichdi safdu safdanaya." Right. Was it for nothing that the eulogists, you know, said their eulogies? The Chantu Chantaya uh, and the Chantaya, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, and the embalmers embalmed, the Kavru Kivraya and the and the you know, the uh, the barriers buried. What kind of Torah is this to just say that Yaakov never died? So Amr so he said to him, Mikrani Darish, I am interpreting a pasuk. Now you know the question is, does that really solve the problem? Right, you're supposed to interpret the pasuk in ways that say that makes sense or not. But here's the pasuk. Shenemar ve'atal tirav di Yaakov nu Hashem. Right, don't be afraid. My servant Yaakov says Hashem ve'al techat Yisrael kineni Moshiach me'rechok ve'zaracha me'eres shivyam makish. Right, so here I'm going to redeem you, redeem um, your, you and your um, and your uh, descendants from the lands in which they are held captive. So it says Moshiach me'rech. Right, so God is officially talking to Yaakov, even though it may, you know, we might say that the pshat is a metaphorical Yaakov. I'm going to redeem you from the distant places, and your descendants from the land in which they are um, they are captive. So it sounds like the same kind of redemption is taking place. So just like Yaakov's descendants are still alive, Yaakov is alive as well. Okay, I think we all get that this is not the world's most compelling, uh, the world's most compelling um, drasha. Um, and I say, first of all, Yaakov in the context there is probably metaphorical. Secondly, who knows, right? Why do why do they both have to be alive, right? They don't they don't 
both have to have red hair. They don't both have, to, right? They don't both have to have the same taste of music. Why do they both have to be alive? Whatever you know, the word, the word Moshiach, whatever that means, can be applied. It's a very weird Vartar. Um and it doesn't really respond to the question, which is okay. You're interpreting the pasuk this way, but your interpretation of the pasuk makes no sense at all because the pasuk says that Yaakov, right, that Yaakov was um, eulogized and embalmed and buried, you know, and eulogizing you can happen while, can happen while someone is alive and and burying can happen when someone is alive but you can't embalm somebody who's alive <laughs> right the embalming pretty much um, convinces us that Yaakov is dead okay so what did he mean so one standard interpretation i think probably the standard interpretation is that he was playing with him you know, what he really meant to say was something moralistic you know that as long as you're as long as your descendants are in the world right so you're in the world too something like that um, and it was just a nice, you know, just a, just a nice vort of that sort and not a very meaningful conversation, or you can try and make that idea for, for tremendously profound. It doesn't help you very much. Um, it doesn't explain why, it doesn't explain the whole, the, you know, the weirdness of the setting. Why does he, why does he, why does he just, you know, cut him, to, cut him to ribbons the first time he asked for a Torah and then give the Devar Torah later. So there is a a wild uh, a wild reading of the Sagadata by uh, an Israeli scholar named Abraham Korman, uh, who wrote a marvelous book called Pianuach Agadot, which is one of my favorite books in the world, uh, and I, I'll probably teach as a full shear at some point. His thesis is um, he situates this story in uh, the center of of a much larger um, reconstructed story all the way through the Talmud, uh, which is his, the the nature of his method is he thinks that stories in the Talmud are um, are not edited in such a way that you could, that they're, that the pieces of the story are held together, but sometimes you can look at the whole of Talmud and you can put together a single story, and it's obviously true in some places. You can see that some stories clearly connect. Like, for example, we've talked a number of times that there's a story called the Oven of Achnai, which ends with Rabbi Eliezer being put in Cherem that you all know, and then, right, that's the Gemara in Bava Metziah, and in Sanhedrin we have a story which begins on Rabbi Eliezer's deathbed with um, right with him still in Cherem. So obviously there has to have been a prior story which put him in Cherem, and those stories are plainly connected, even though the Talmud has them in different places. So, um, I guess Rabbi Corman, I'm not sure what it, whether he uh, what his official title was. Um, I think you know, he was he was an early Zionist, and I think he had a job that was not involved in Chinuch, but he wrote fun books in his spare time. It was very influential at some point. Right? He wrote a, a very popular book called The Evolution in Halacha, Blasi Halacha. But Pirach Agadot is a really cool one. So he connects, he has built a whole universe about this, in which uh, there's Yerushalmi, in which Rabbi Avohu is, can can be read as Rabbi Avohu watching his own funeral. Uh, now, why is Rabbi Avohu watching his own funeral? Because as the leader of the Jewish community, he was in trouble with the authorities, and so he had to fake his death. Aha, and if he had to fake, when, when, when a leader fakes their death, it's likely that, some, that they'll be maneuvering for succession. And therefore, Rav Yitzchak, who would have been, or Nachman, who would have been maneuvering for the succession, is actually trying to get support from Rav Yitzchak. And Rav Yitzchak has to find a way to tell him that this is all a mistake, because actually Rabbi Avo is not dead. So he finds another Gemara, which says that Rabbi Avo shared, uh, was sort of the living, looked like the living embodiment of Yaakov. And so therefore, Yaakov in Lomate is a reference to Rabbi Avo actually only faking his death and not really his death. And so the whole Gemara, uh, right, is really just the, you know, a, a coded conversation about rabbinic politics. Okay, that's a, uh, that, you know, like all of Corman's things, it's, it's brilliant. It's very hard to evaluate how you would know whether it's, uh, whether it's true or not. Um, and it still leaves us with this very weird drusha, uh, this very weird drusha. That um, you know that that Yaakov that Yaakov is still alive. Why would you say something like that? So, if you read the Gemara, there's um, there's there, there's an obvious gap because the Gemara says, "Well, did they eulogize him for nothing? Did they embalm him for nothing? And did they bury him for nothing?" So obviously, what's missing is somebody getting up and say, "It says in the pasuk that he died." Right, so that would be the easier answer, right? You say he's alive, but it says he died. Instead, he talks about all right. You know, he talks about all the practical things that it says, and so the answer must be, of course, that the Torah never actually tells us that Yaakov died. In those words, it never says Yaakov mate. It uses other words. It says Vayigva. It says Vayasef Elamav. 
right? Uh, right? Things that we treat as euphemisms or as other kinds of descriptions of of death, right? He was gathered to his ancestors, but it never says he actually died. Okay, so that's the question: How many people, right? Does how many people does it necessarily say that they died specifically? You can do a study throughout Tanakh and discover that sometimes it says people died, and sometimes it says sometimes it uses the euphemisms passed on, whatever it may be. And so maybe this is compelling or not. What I want to argue is that the that whatever you think he means when he says Yaakov doesn't die, he's picking up on more than just the notion that the Torah never said, uses the verb or the right mates, right? That um, about Yaakov, you know, he's actually picking on something that runs through the whole story, right? So that introduction, I want to take us through, uh, right? A, a, a tour uh, that's really going to be, I guess, uh, a 12 prokim long of Bereshis. And we'll raise a whole bunch of issues as we go through this rapid tour. But the thing that I want to be focusing on is whether Yaakov dies or not. Or um, another idea is how often does Yaakov die? And the, I guess what I hope I'll demonstrate is that Yaakov's death plays out kind of like scenes in um, in you know, mediocre westerns where the character comes on and gets shot, and then it takes about seven or eight minutes uh, for the cat, right? Where you just have long deathbed scenes. So let's watch what happens with Yaakov. So here we, now we're on page two of the Makarot. So on Breshit, uh, in Breshit Lamed Zion, right? So we're in chapter 37, uh, verse 35, when uh, when Yaakov believes that Yosef is dead, so it says, So all Yaakov's sons and daughters, where the daughters come from, how many daughters there are, separate issue, Right, get up to comfort Yaakov. And Yaakov refuses to be comforted by Yomer, and he says, "Ki el avel sheola." I will descend to my son in mourning sheola. Okay, what sheola means is not clear, but it seems to be something like the grave. So Yaakov, first thing Yaakov says is, "I refuse to be comforted," which essentially means, "I refuse to rejoin the living." Right, I believe my son is dead, and as my son is dead, I am going to stay, and I have no interest in emerging from mourning. And it, you could, you know, argue there's a vision there in which mourning is sort of a um, what is the term the anthropologists use a liminal state, right, where you're, right, where where you're, where the mourner is somewhere themselves fixed between the worlds, uh, the world of the living and the world of the grave. And Yaakov says, "I'm not going to emerge." Okay, so Yaakov right now is in. This uh, this in between world, but then we discover in Breshit Memhei, So when the brothers come back from Egypt, they right they say to, they say to Yaakov, "Od Yosef Chai, Yosef is alive too." And Yaakov We don't really know what Vayafag means; it doesn't show up very often. But something very bad happens to his heart, because he refuses to believe them. And then they tell him all the things that Yosef said, and he sees the wagons, right? Whatever, however the wagons. Um, Revive him, and then Yaakov is alive again. Okay, so there's the first death of Yaakov is when he hears about what he believes is Yosef's death, and then Yaakov is resurrected along with Yosef because he's willing to rejoin the living um, when um, when Yosef wait when he discovers that Yosef is alive. Um, the scene I would think about in a sense like this is I just remember this because I didn't understand it at all when I first read it, but in um, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. There's the the um, prisoner who is who is rescued from the Bastille after all those years. So the word, the phrase that Dickens keeps using is "recalled to life." But he's recalled to life, but he's not really yet alive. So Yaakov, right? Yaakov was not really alive. Now he's back alive. But what's the first thing he says when he's back alive? He says, "Rav od Yosef benichai elchaver mamut." It's great that Yosef, my son, is alive. I will go see him before I die. So Yaakov's immediate um, immediate response to being alive again is that he is very, very conscious of the temporariness of being alive. Right? He sees himself as brought back to life, but as often happens in uh, in stories in stories of resurrection, uh, whether um, you know, famous ones, in uh, the Christian Testament, or in uh, right, or yeah, or in, now we read about it that people recalled to life, right? As in Dickens, uh, often do not really rejoin the uh, rejoin the living. Harry Potter, 
right? That the what the resurrection stone, uh, what the resurrection resurrection stone does. So Yosef, right? So Yaakov is alive, but not, but he's only he's alive for the sole purpose of seeing that Yosef is alive, and once Yosef is alive, he can die. So that ties into Rav Yitzchak in the name of Yochanan's work, right? That Yaakov's the only way Yaakov is going to live is through Yosef. Okay, now the structure gets more complicated. Okay, then we have a story, um, and we'll, and you can try to pay attention to the interaction of the words Yisrael and Yaakov in these stories. I don't have a solution. Uh, I don't think anyone has ever come up with a remotely satisfi- satisfying solution for the in, for the uh, the ways in which the names Yisrael and Yaakov interchange in the narrative. Uh, splitting the narrative doesn't do any good at all, right? So, for example, here we have a story, right, uh, where Yisrael and everything. That, that, that everything that is with him come to Be'er Sheva, and he sacrifices to God, and then Hashem says to Yisrael in a dream, and he says to Yisrael, Yaakov. Okay, so there, obviously there's no there, there's no obvious way of doing it. And Yaakov responds the way he should, Hineni, and Hashem tells him, don't worry, go to Egypt, and Yosef will put, right, will, will put his hands over your eyes. Yaakov gets up from Be'er Sheva. All right, now we have a, um, now we have a, a narrative that seems to be in tension with itself, right? So Yaakov arises from Beersheba, and all of a sudden it says, and B'nai Yisrael took Yaakov, their father, and all their children and their wives in the wagons that Paro sent, and they took their they took their flocks and their property, and they all come, they all come to Mitzrayim, right? So first it's Yaakov gets up, and then the children of Israel take Yaakov, and then they all come to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and all his descendants, with his children and his grandchildren with him. Uh, right? So it's really not clear whether Yaakov is going or being brought, who the active party is, who the passive party is being brought. I don't have a solution for this, except I can tell you the same thing happens in when Avram takes Lot. There's a pasuk which says that uh, Avram takes Lot, and immediately the, the, and the uh, immediately following pasuk says that Lot went with Avram, and all the Rishonim pick up that there's a deep tension as to whether Avram is supposed to take Lot, or Avram really doesn't want to take Lot and Lot tags along, and that ties into whether Avram ever fulfills Lech Lecha Mimolot, whether Avram, or when Avram fulfills his leaving his, his, um, his family. So there seems to be the same kind of tension here as to whether the going down to Egypt is Yaakov voluntarily going, and God tells him to go, or whether it's, and whether Yaakov is still the leader, or whether this is the moment when Yaakov ceases to become to be the leader, really the leadership has transferred to Yosef, although no one no one in his family necessarily understands this yet, and Yaakov is just being carried along passively. Okay, but so far Yaakov's still alive. Then we interrupt, and we have a long genealogy about the about Yaakov coming to Mitzrayim, Yaakov and his whole family coming down to Mitzrayim. Right, so you know that in Sefer Bracious. Um, there's, we're constantly interweaving long begats, right, genealogical sections with narrative sections. So right after we were told that they all come to Egypt, then we're told again in a genealogy, right, a list of the 70 people who, um, right, who come down as Yaakov's family to Mitzrayim. Okay, now we pick up on the narrative again. Yaakov sends Yehuda in front of him to Yosef. Um, right, again, it seems like Yaakov's in charge again. Harot Lifanav Goshna, right? Those are you know, not at all clear. What it seems to be clear is that Goshen, because Goshen hasn't been mentioned yet, um, I don't think, right? So it sounds like, so, but it sounds like Goshen is on the way, and Yehuda in some way is sent forth, although, right, for, right, Chazal, it means, right, Lahorot means that it's, a, it's preparing Yeshiva, and they come to Goshen. Yosef, right, Yosef, um, you know, gets his, his chariot ready. He greets, he greets Yaakov. Somebody sees somebody else. That's a whole controversy. Somebody falls on somebody else's right, uh, somebody else's neck. So now that Yaakov has seen Yosef, what does he say? Now I will die. Now that I see that you are alive, right? So Yaakov's very consistent again, right? He is dead because Yosef is dead. He's alive because Yosef is alive. Only so, but he wants to make sure, and then he can die. And now, um, now. Right, he's seen Yosef, he's, for all purposes, he believes he should die now. Okay, right, so this is the second death of Yaakov Avinu. Okay, now Yosef um, cooks up this whole plan 
with his brothers about how right about where where they're going to come from where they're going to right when they go to Paro he dictates to them exactly what Paro is going to say and what they're going to say in response to Paro. Um, they don't say exactly the same thing, and you could we could spend lots of time trying to figure out whether this is one of the cases where the Torah just doesn't like using the same words over and over again, so it tells you the same story in slightly different words, or whether there's a real difference between what Yosef tells the brothers to say and what they actually say, and how Paro understands it. A lot of this will revolve around whether you think that Yosef telling the brothers that sheep herders are to Avat Mitzrayim, does that mean that they are reviled, or is the the biblical narrator saying toiva because that's how we think of their gods, but really, um, but really, but really, sheep herders have very high status, and how we would play out right because the, because they were right, we can play play a lot out. That's not our issue, right? So they all right. Then after Yosef brings his brothers, then he brings Yaakov in um, in front of Paro, even though he had no prior conversation with Yaakov. Yaakov seems very much an afterthought, and Paro says to Yaakov, "How long have you been alive? How many years have you been alive?" And Yaakov says, I have, right, Yaakov says, Migurai are 130 years, but the years of Chayai were very few and right and bad. So it's very hard, you know, even in the biblical world, for some to imagine somebody saying, you know, how long have you been alive? Well, not very long, only 130 years. Right, even in the biblical world, that seems excessive. And therefore, we pick up that Yaakov doesn't really think he's been alive many of these years. Uh, right, that Yaakov thinks life is right, life is happiness and calm and contentment and everything else. He might as well not be alive, uh, right? So he says, "My years were few, were few and and uh, right and negative, and they, I never, I didn't, they didn't reach the years of the Chaye Avotai, right? Of the time my 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 ancestors lived in their Megurim, right? They had much more of life than I did in my in my years, right? Yaakov blesses Paro when he leaves. Okay, Yosef." takes his father and his brothers, and he gives them an achuzah in Eretz Mitzrayim, in the best of the land, which is what Paro said, although he gives it them Eretz Ramesses, even though Paro said Eretz Goshen, Yosef said Eretz Goshen, so we have to assume that Eretz Ramesses is somehow somewhere in the middle of Goshen. Okay, right, so now we have our story, right, and Yaakov, as far as we're concerned, Yaakov has nothing, it seems like, left to do in life. He, right, Yaakov is recalled to life, he says, I'm going to go see Yosef before I die, he sees Yosef, um, he might as well die now, and he seems to think that also, because he tells Paro, I haven't been alive very long, and seems plausibly he doesn't expect to be alive very long anymore now. Okay, then we have a shift. Right, it says, Yosef Yosef feeds his um, his fathers and his brothers, and his whole, uh, his whole paternal family, Lechem lefihataf. He gives them a bread allotment, um, right, for, for all of them. Okay, but we discover the immediately following pasuk, Belechem ein bechol ha'aretz. Yosef feeds them, um, Yosef feeds them bread, even though there is no bread anywhere in the land. So here we have our first question, like, where the boundaries of the stories are. If you read the bottom of page three and the top of page four together, which are consecutive psukim, then the the right sorry uh, sorry the top if you read the two psukim at the top of page four together, uh, right that's really a stark contrast. Yosef feeds his family um, while ev- while there is no bread anywhere else in Mitzrayim, um, and we could read it as the end of the previous line, right? Yosef, right, the bottom of page three, Yosef puts his whole family in right in a settled place in Mitzrayim. And he feeds them. And then the narrative resumes, but right, even so, it's really pretty stark. It gets starker if you understand, right, if you recall that, that, that what Yosef did to give his family a, um, a setting in, um, in Goshen was to say that they're all shepherds. So shepherds don't live off bread, right? Shepherds don't live with agriculture. They have, right, they have, right, they can slaughter their animals, they have milk. Um, so what Yosef's doing is he's giving them bread, which enables them to maintain their wealth. Right? They're not in danger of starvation. They're in danger of losing right, their, in the short run, unlike everyone in Mitzrayim. Uh, right? So what Yosef does to everyone in Mitzrayim is he makes them surrender all of their independent wealth in order to get bread. But, um, right, but, Yaakov and, but Yaakov and his family, 
he feeds them so they don't have to slaughter their animals and they right they can use right they can use they can graze their sheep and continue growing which is a really uh, powerful and dangerous uh, thing which is you know one presumes bound to create uh, bound to create great resentment um that he, um that he does this um right in the end the only independent landowners left in under the pharaohs are the kohanim of Mitzrayim, who read who read whom paro has already set aside a bread allotment and the Jews, whom Yosef has given a bread allotment, and that ties into it's not what I want to do this week, but I can't, you know, I can't pass through the uh, pass through the um, parsha without saying it that you know, the way I read it is that Yosef is responsible for enslaving the Egyptians. He does nothing but increase um, Paro's power. He centralizes power. Uh, when a new Paro comes, there's popular resentment, and therefore Yosef has to. Therefore, he read right, he pretends not to know who Yosef was because he doesn't want. To take responsibility for the uh, for the loss of all native Egyptian economic independence, and naturally he turns against the um, he turns against the Jews who have been left their property because that's safer than turning against the uh, against the priests whose support he presumably needs. But for our purposes, what I want to do is try and figure out where the breaks in the narrative are. Okay, so we had a genealogy, uh, right? We have the story of uh, we have after the genealogy we have the story of how everybody comes down to. Everybody comes down to Egypt and is installed, and we're continuing that story, right? The narrative appears continuous, and the brothers come down to Egypt. Yosef, is, Yosef turns all of Egypt, except for the Kohanim and the brothers, into um, into slaves. But let's watch it. What happens in that story? In the story, um, the Egyptians constantly say to Yosef, "Lama namut? Why should we die?" Right? Can we live and not die? And um, in the end, they say to Yosef, "Hechi Itano, you have kept us alive, even though he's kept them alive in a state which leaves them permanently enslaved to Paro." So we we don't leave the theme of Chaim and Navit behind in the story. So maybe there's a way to connect what's going on with Yaakov with what's going on with Yosef. Yosef is it appears a, a source of life to everybody. Maybe that would be the argument. But he doesn't really bring Yaakov back to life. Yaakov is just there long enough to see that he's alive, and he doesn't really bring, maybe maybe he doesn't really bring Egypt back to life either. Okay, end of narrative. Vayashav Yisrael Beretz Mitzrayim Beretz Goshen. After we have this excursus about the enslavement of Egypt, Yisrael stays in Mitzrayim in Goshen, and we, they are very successful. We are very successful. Okay, that's the end of last week's Parsha. We get to this week's Parsha. Now, Yaakov lives in Eretz Mitzrayim. Right here we have the word Vayechi. 17 years. Okay, so all of a sudden, Yaakov is alive. He's alive in Egypt 17 years. So all the Rishonim pick up immediately that Yosef is, um, Yosef is lost from him when he's 17 years. And so Yaakov's life is symmetrical. There's 17 years of life at the beginning and 17 years at the end. So we just right. So we seventeen years pass in a right pass in a sentence, right? We haven't read we we have a description of what happened, right? The, they come down to Egypt, and then there's a very general description of what's going on throughout the whole land. Everyone is successful, and Yaakov, it turns out, lives for seventeen years after the second time he dies. What happens as soon as Yaakov is alive? What's the immediate thing that happens? What happens is. Immediately, it becomes time to die. So this is the third time that Yaakov dies. Right? He dies when Yosef is kidnapped. He dies when he sees Yosef after, right after Yosef comes back. And now he's been alive for 17 years, and it's time to die again. Um, so this is a challenge, right? So... The sense of the pasuk appears to be that Yaakov knows that he's dying. Right? This is not a this is not a narrator description. Right? It's not right. It's not Yaakov's about to die, but thank God he got this done in time. This is Yaakov notices that his days are coming near to die, and so he thinks I have to do something before I die. What does he have to do? So of course he has to say right. He has to call Yosef because that's where all his life is tied up. And he calls Yosef, and he addresses Yosef in a way which is very stark, in that he addresses Yosef 
the way he addressed Esav when they when he confronted him in the beginning of Parsha Vayishlach, um, but also uh, right there's a tension because he also addresses him the way that Avram addresses his servant before sending him back to get a wife for uh, for Yitzchak. It's very respectful, right? Matzasi chen beinecha, but it's also tachet yirechi. Uh, right, and the the one thing that Yaakov wants is not to be buried in Egypt. I want to be buried somewhere else, right? So what Yaakov cares about, the last thing he has to do um, while he's alive is to prepare properly for death. So Yaakov's whole life is once again, right? This is Yaakov's third death, and he makes Yosef promise, right? Yosef, Yosef says, "I will do what you want," and Yaakov insists, "I need you to swear it to me," um, right? Whether it's because he doesn't trust Yosef or because he fears that Yosef. Uh, will not right. That he, need, he needs to give Yosef bargaining power, so he says, "I need you to, I need you to take an oath because that way you can go to the Egyptian Supreme Court and claim that it's a violation of your religious freedom if you're not allowed to bury me, right? To bury me in Israel." And Yosef um, swears to him, and Yaakov bows to, to the Rosh Habitat, And then there's a great, great tension in rabbinic literature. Why, why does Yaakov bow, bow, bow at, the, um, at the front of the bed? Is he bowing to Yosef, which would emphasize the parallels to to Esav? All right, Rashi says that you know when, when the fox in its in its moment of power you bow to it, or is he bowing to God for allowing him the joy of seeing Yosef alive? Okay, so now Yaakov, right? We assume that Yaakov's now arranged for his burial, and after you arrange for your burial, so the next thing you're supposed to do is die. All right, this is um, right. This will be this will be number three, but guess what? So it happens. It happens after that. So there's always a debate whether, uh, whether, uh, whether um, which one is acharei or acharei that is um, that is uh, that means far away. So you could read it right, depending which way. Um, that uh, I'm sorry, my screen seems to have blanked out, but I'm gonna try keep trying to go. Um, right, so. He, so if you think that acharei means uh, a significant time afterwards, uh, and not immediately afterwards, so it seems that Yaakov once again um, lives, uh, although he lives in the anticipation of um, the anticipation of death. Um, okay, I have no idea why my screen just did this, and I don't. Um, okay, got it back. Sorry. Uh, okay. So now, right, so now, after after Yaakov dies for the third time, so there's, a, right, so a messenger comes to Yosef, or somebody says, Your father is sick. Right, so sickness, right, sickness is, right, after he's supposed to be, right, in his own vision, he's supposed to be dead, instead, he is, right, he's sick. And so now Yosef takes his sons with him, and he comes to Yaakov, and Yaakov is told that uh, his son is going to visit him, so Yaakov Gets up, he's strengthened, and he sits on and he sits on the bed because Yosef is always a source of life to him. But what does he say to Yosef? Yosef, Look, I am dead. Um, so that's death number four, right? And he, he blesses, right? First he bless he blesses Menashe and Ephraim, and then he says, "Behold, I am dead." So that's Yaakov's that's Yaakov's fourth uh, fourth death um, before which right before which he gives Yosef the bechorah. Okay, and then right. So now, right now, it already you know it already be, you know if we were watching a drama, it would already be farcical, right? Yaakov already had four different, right? Had four death scenes. Um, sorry. So the, right, the next thing that happens is Yaakov gathers all his uh, descendants together, and he says, He's come. I will tell you all the the things that will happen to you at the end of the at the end of days." That he doesn't, you know. Then he gives them their sort of brachot. We don't really know whether, whether they're brachot or not, and um, and uh, right. And then finally, Yaakov is gava Yosef elamav, but not not actually um, right. Not the, the word the word mate is not actually um, used. So what I want to say is that the vort Yaakov vina lo mate is not based just on the absence of the term mate in the story is the absence of the term mate in the story when it has been used so pre- so often previously in the story. Um, right? Where you, right? You're constantly expecting Yaakov to die, and he never does. Um, right? So at the last moment, you would expect he finally will, 
And so that's what the the that's what the version of the that's what that word is is doing literally, and we have to try and figure out on the whole, right? Why is there so much emphasis um, that Yaakov's life is not really um, is not really living from his own perspective, even though what you see all the way through is that Yaakov has a very productive life. He has many descendants, and those right. He has even in his right. He comes down to Egypt. He already has a family of seventy, which is a decent sized family, um, and. Right, and by the time you know, fairly shortly, it's going to end up being six hundred thousand. The versions where it's already six hundred thousand um, while he's alive. So that's a try. Right? So that's what the word is trying to do. Okay, I apologize. My screen seems to have blanked again, um, and I don't have a printout. So I'm going to try my darndest to figure out a way. In uh, okay, here we go again. All right. Um, okay, that's my ba- right. That's my basic. Um, that's my basic structure for the. Um, for what happens in the framework. So now I want to take you to the Rishonim and let's take a look at um, what the Rishonim do and see whether any of it actually gives us something instructive about this this narrative. So Rashi says, right, the first thing, which is not a really important issue for us, is that So what does that mean? Whenever the Torah, the Tanakh says that it approached their time of death, it means they didn't reach the time they died before their their um, their ancestors' age, uh, right? But what Rashi is suggesting is, you know, that they grew in Meisr means when somebody reaches the age of their parents, they get scared, right? And that often is a very negative force, I should say. That uh, like one of the you know, consistent tragedies you can read about are people who, because their ancestors died young, think that you know that that, that end up making it a self fulfilling prophecy. Mickey Mantle, I think, is a very famous story, right? Who you know who didn't see any point in controlling. Uh, his excesses with regard to um, to substance abuse because he assumed that he was going to die young anyway. Uh, okay, so the problem with that, as I say, is right that Rashi would be Rashi would be telling us something valuable if it was a narrator saying it. Um, but so if he's saying it subjectively, is that yeah, right? Yeah, is that Yaakov doesn't expect to live longer than his ancestors, but it turns out. But since it does turn out that way, it's really it's really hard to figure out what Rashi is accomplishing here. The Nitziv says something a little bit different. They probably know the Yosef. Yaakov Yaakov realizes that it's ve'egruvi meisrael amut, but ve'egruvi meisrael amut does not mean that he feels ill. Right? And that Yaakov assumes he's going to get sick, but he's not that sick yet. Right? He doesn't want to wait till he's sick to ask about the burial. Because he intends to give Yosef the extra shevet, and if he does it at the same time, if he right, if he Gives if he gives if he asks Yosef about the burial at the same time that he gives Yosef the extra tribe, then everybody will think that he's bribing Yosef. And right, so therefore he has to separate them. Right, so it's not that Yaakov really thinks he's dying now; it's that he thinks that he needs to be he needs to set this up in time so that nobody will suspect him. Uh, right, will suspect um, Yosef of doing it only because of the bribe. Now, that's also a. Um, that's also a uh, you know a sort of not terribly compelling shot because you could say you know just because there's a delay doesn't mean that people aren't going to say that it was a quid pro quo. People are always suspicious that way. You can go back to Lincoln Douglas debates that you know that there being time gaps between the quid and the the, the quid and the quo doesn't stop doesn't stop popular rumors. But the interesting comment that it says Vim Kane ain't zemiruach hakodesh. Right, so don't think that this is not he says the narrator telling us it's just Yaakov thinking to himself, you know what? I need a lot of time before I die to do this. Right? I need there to be a long enough break that when the next thing happens, nobody will connect them. That's an interesting way out of trying to uh, um, try to explain why there are, why even in Parshat Vayechi, there are multiple death scenes. Right? right? That's why Yaakov clarifies the matter here before Yosef knows anything about the Mechorah. Uh, and the second suggestion that Steve has, which is cleverer, is that if if that Yaakov knows that you, that oaths taken to people on their deathbeds are not binding, because you're allowed to swear falsely in order to, you know, because they because they, there's a mitzvah to make them, uh, right, to make them, um, to make them comfortable. 
And therefore, by Yaakov, because he knows the halacha, so he wouldn't be comforted by an oath taken on his deathbed. So he needs an, right. So he needs to make Yosef swear before he's on his deathbed, because then, in fact, it's forbidden for Yosef to take the oath if he doesn't mean it. And that way, on his actual deathbed, he can be comforted that Yosef is really bound by the oath. Right. That's a very clever, uh, very clever shot by the um, by the Deceive. and you know, it ties into the general problem that there are all sorts of things in halacha that only work if you um, if you don't know the halacha. Right, there are halachas that are set up on the assumption that the other party is ignorant, and therefore you can right. But once they know that, it doesn't work at all, um, right? For example, right, you know, possibly the first mission in Brachos, which says that we told you midnight, even though the real time is real time, the real ending time for Kriyat Shema is dawn, because otherwise you'll wait too late. But now that you know the real halacha is dawn, you're going to wait too late anyway. So, right, so that mission only works for people who haven't read the Mishnah. Okay, maybe. Okay, the Rashbam says the following, right? And this is really what I was building uh, building towards all the way through. Rashbam says the following, so the, right, the time came for Israel to die. Uh, every time somebody intends to, you know, to make, right, to give instructions to their children, it has to say, and he gives you other examples, Yitzchak, um, right? He says, but here's what Rashbam says, which is what I wanted to set, the whole thing I wanted to set up, where, where I started from. Rashbam says, Parshat Vayechi is not actually the beginning of the story. The Parsha break is in the wrong place. Really, this paragraph, right, this section begins with Vayeshev Yisrael Be'eretz Mitzrayim. Okay, whereas... Uh, where is Vayeshev Yisrael Beretz Mitzrayim? So we have to go back to right, the earlier pages. Vayeshev Yisrael Beretz Mitzrayim is right the last right is the last sentence of the previous parsha. Vayeshev Yisrael Beretz Mitzrayim Beretz Goshen Vayechazuva Vayifru Vayerbu Meod. So Rishbam says that we are misunderstanding the whole story if we think that the story is supposed to begin right with this whole parsha is really the whole parsha of the death of Yaakov. Right, it starts off with list with how long Yaakov lived, and it moves immediately to his death. That's a mistake because of the Parsha break. Really, the way the story is supposed to go is Yosef enslaves Egypt, and the Jews are prosperous, and Yaakov lives seventeen happy years in Egypt. Uh, right, so we don't as opposed to the way we have the Parsha, which starts off Yaakov lived, and we sum up his years, which makes it clear he's about to die. Right, so the whole parsha is right. The whole parsha is the extended death of Yaakov. Rashbam says that's a mistake, and really the parsha starts one, right? Starts one pasuk earlier, and this is supposed to be a celebratory lap. Right, Yaakov is in Egypt, and his his family is established, and they have an achuzah, and they're fruitful, and they multiply, and everything is great. And now Yaakov can die because he has succeeded. Right, so that's the first thing Rashbam says that where you draw the line is really important. So we have to be clear. Right, that um, that's assuming right, but the the, the line the, the 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 connection of Ayesha of Israel can go the other way, because we could read it and say what just happened. The previous story is all about how nobody in Egypt owns land except for the Kohanim, and then we have this line about right Bnei Israel but they in Egypt they acquired Nachuza, so that can be a critique of them you know, living in Chuzlaris with Nachuza, but more likely. It's a contrast to what Yosef just did to Egypt. And the only people left there are the Jew- the only people left with Nachuza are the Jews. So that makes perfect right since the next story about you know, about about um, Yaakov's death. If we read the story as being about Yaakov's death, the whole story of Yaakov's death is I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Why don't I want it, right? And there, what is what is I want? I don't want to be buried in Egypt. So I don't want to be buried in Egypt is the inverse of Avram at the Marat, right at the Marat HaMachpelah. Avram buys the Amaratha Machpel and he goes, right, he goes through every possible legal um, connection to make sure to the end of the day he owns the Amaratha Machpelah. And he, right, he's not just being allowed to bury it as a resident alien, but he owns it as a full citizen. And the whole point is that burial, being buried in Hebron or burying Sarah in Hebron and himself being buried there, is the way in which Avram establishes that he really belongs in Canaan. And so Yaakov insists on not being buried in Mitzrayim to show that we don't really belong in Egypt, even though, right, the previous story tells us that um, tells us that the rest of his family, in fact, sees Eretz Mitzrayim as an achuzah. So the question of 
whether the Parsha begins with Vayechi, or whether the Parsha really is supposed to be in Vayeshev, are two radically different ways of reading the story. If you read it the way we have it, so there's a, right, there's a profound, they start with a profound moral critique that Yosef dispossesses all of Egypt, so the only people left with an Achuzah are the Jews, and the contrast to the Jews having an Achuzah is Yaakov, who desperately wants to make sure that he is not part, he does not have an Achuzah in Egypt, and therefore, right, he makes that point to Yosef very specifically, because Yosef is the one who has gotten this wrong. And in fact, Parshat Vayechi is supposed to be depressing. It's all about, right, it's all about Yaakov's death because it's not really a happy life for Yaakov in, um, in Egypt. Maybe, right, he expected that he expected that he would uh, come, perhaps um, die immediately. And instead, he gets to see Yosef get it wrong. And the only way he can see uh, to put it right is to make the point again in his death. Okay, now Rashbam, however, does not, uh, does not read the story this way. Um, Rashbam says, Rashbam thinks that the right that our parsha break is in the wrong place, and he says, But the communities didn't want to end the previous parsha with "and all the land belonged to Pharaoh." Okay, so that's not actually the right pasuk, and it's not clear. I think it's clear that Rashbam really means the end of the previous Pesach, meaning Rashbam means um, is up here. I don't want to make too much out of that. I think that um, I think that that's just a mistake. But Rashbam thinks that it's a choice of the communities, and the choice of the communities as to where to break the Parsha is not based on anything, doesn't tell us anything important about the Parsha. It's just, now it doesn't tell us either why people don't want to read, what's wrong with ending the Parsha on the So maybe people get the sense that that's a little bit critical of, um, of Yosef, but I'm not convinced either. I don't really understand the argument because it's actually more critical to Yosef if you have the, the contrast between the Mitzrayim and the Achuzah. But maybe they just, right, they thought that this was a happy ending. If that's the case, then, you know, I would, I guess I would advocate, you know, if I had any kind of authority like that, if Rashbam were correct, I would say, let's go back and let's re-break the, uh, let's re-break the Parshiot up if you want, if you, to show that's not a happy ending. On the other hand, I think that um, the moral point is made more powerfully this way. It's just that Rashbam doesn't see the moral point. Okay. In general, you know, I tend to, um, this, right, I tend to think that Rashbam notices really important points, but I don't like the way he interprets them in many ways. Okay. The Mizrahi, so commentary on Rashi says the following. The Gemara asks, Lama Parsha Zu Stuma, right? Why is this Parsha Vayechi Stuma? So what does it mean to be Stuma? So there normally there are two kinds of, of paragraph breaks in Chumash, uh, right? One is when there's a hole in the middle of the line, when there's a break in the middle of the line, one is just where one line ends in the middle and the next line start. And the next line starts, either then you start the next line. Parsha Vayechi is odd. It's one of only two Parsha, I think. The other is Vayetze, in which there is no break at all. Between the right between the parshiot right so Rashbam's literary claim is actually backed up by the uh, orthography that you're not there's not supposed to be any break between the pre the, the last pasuk of parshat vayigash and the um, and the beginning of parshat uh, vayichi. So Rashbam says that Rashbam's question was actually already asked right uh, the Rashbam right you know asked as if it's a pshat question but it's really the question that comes to the midrash why is why is there a Parsha break uh, in liturgically? Why do we break the Parsha up here when it seems that uh, according to the way the Torah is written, there shouldn't be a break here? Okay. Um, all right, so he proves you that this is not a question, that this is really what that question means. Uh, right? Lama Parsha Zustuma Biltishum Revach Klal. And his answer is, Mipnesha Ezra HaSofer, Allah HaShalom, Lo Tikein Trilata Parsha Zot Min Vayichi Yaakov, why would Ezra HaSofer begin the Parsha where it is? Elevei Pnei Shemukubalitz, though it must be that he had a tradition, that really, from the standpoint of the meaning of the Parsha, there should be a break there. But for some reason, Hashem made a decree um, that you shouldn't put the break there, even though the meaning of Torah 
means there should be a break there. Okay, so Rabbi says the same thing that Rashbam did, but with a very different um, connotation. Rashbam said, you know what, it's Pshat and Chumash is that this is the wrong break, but they wanted to end on, a ha- on what they considered to be a happy note, so they broke the Parsha up. But uh, but Mizrahi says that there has to be a meaning to both readings, because the Pshat and Chumash is that the part right is that we should have right is that we should have um, put a break here, but God told us not to put the break there. Now, why the, why does God not want us to put the break there? So, really, the answer must be that this pasuk should be read. This break should be read both ways. You have to read it across the partial break, and you have to read it with the break between the partials. So, both of the readings we suggested, right, the readings in which this is a story which begins with Yaakov's success. And Yaakov dies having succeeded, and the story the story in which the previous parsha ends with this biting critique of what Yosef does, and follows that with Yaakov, right with Yaakov's death, not Yaakov's life, because right in the end it's a failure because his whole family ends up with an in Egypt. Both those readings are true, and the challenge we have to figure out is right what's the balance between them, and which one of them has uh, which one of them has more power. Uh, has more power for us, right? So I think that as opposed to Rashbam, who thinks the traditional partial break has right has no meaning at all, Mizrahi says something, right? Mizrahi is unwilling to believe that, as opposed to attributing our partial break, which leaves the contrast between right, right, where when you read that Bnei Israel are are, um, are having an Achuzah in Egypt, you read that immediately after realizing that nobody else in Egypt does. Uh, Mizrahi says that must be the way in which God told. Right, God wrote the Torah so that we would not think of it the other way, even though the language applies the other way. So I think Mizrahi says something really powerful there. Okay, so we're just finishing up. We should just take a look at the the way in which the question Lama Parsha Stuma, I gave you my answer, um, right, is that the part that the that we set it up so that you can understand that you can read Yaakov's story both ways. One way in which it's a fail right, in which his life is a failure. And one way in which his life is his life is a success. Um, so let's, read, let's see the way that other commentators um, read it. So one other, one answer which um, is along the lines of Rashbam, Rav Yosef Kara is the first one I've so suggested it, is to say that um, that the reason this parsha is Tuma is because it's just we're just trying to hold Yaakov's you know, the count of Yaakov's years together, and here it says Yaakov lives in Egypt seventeen years. How do we write earlier? We learned that Yaakov um, lived 130 years until he came to Egypt. So we want to write so the the Torah, the Torah doesn't make the orthographical break, so that you'll you'll be able to figure out how 17 plus what he lived before is 147. So this is a little weak, I think, because um, 130 years don't appear in the voice of the narrator. 130 years appear in Yaakov's dialogue with Paro, um, and that's not usually an issue. We don't really we don't usually really use a character statement of their age in genealogies, so I'm not at all convinced by this answer at all. Okay, the um, Tzor HaMor gives like a purely allegorical answer. He says, parsha zu stuma. So stuma, instead of having the technical meaning that it's enclosed on every side, he thinks, right, stuma means that it's completely impenetrable, it's sealed up. Right, satuma vichatuma. Why? Because he says, lefishu nafteach vichotem umanul It's really the the lock that hides the secrets of this whole of this whole book, um, and also the key and the seal of the whole book. Right, he has this whole right. He's going to he reads Parshat Vayechi contains all of all of of Bracious and all of human history, and you can read his interpretation and see if you're convinced. I don't know what to do with interpretations like that. The Midrash Rabbah, which is the first source we have of the question, offers three answers for why this parsha is Tuma. One possibility is that the death of the death of Yaakov. Is the beginning of the real enslavement of the Jews. So Parshat Vayechi, um, Parshat Vayechi is Satum because it's a dark, sealed period for the Jews. The weakness everyone points out is that actually Yaakov doesn't die at the beginning of Vayechi, right? Yaakov dies right many psukim later, um, right? And the the apparent death at the beginning of Vayechi is a false ending. So that's not the world's most convincing answer. Uh, second answer is Satum again. It's a it's a pun on uh, it's a pun on the um, on being us uh, on being sealed because we discover later on that when Yaakov's dying he tries to reveal all the secrets that the Torah Mor said were hidden in this week's parsha 
and he failed to do it, right? So that the world, the, the future became a sealed book to him. So that's why it's Satum. This also is just a pun on the word Satum. And um, another one is that it became Satum because all his troubles ended. Uh, right, that's the third. That's right. That's the third interpretation because all his troubles, uh, all all his troubles ended. Um, so that also is a pun on the word satum, but I want to argue that this actually is a very powerful uh, that that it means something, right? Because it makes a claim that Yaakov's seventeen years in Mitzrayim are happy, right? And that's why this parsha is satum because right because all his previous troubles were ended. So now the interesting thing is that Rashi. Quotes the Medrash and leaves out that last reason. So I want to suggest is that really there are two lines of interpretation throughout this story, um, and I think they're both true. Rashi doesn't like the the one that, Mizra- that Mizrahi introduces, um, and which one Rashbam likes is not a hundred percent clear to me. One interpretation says that Parshat Vayechi is a capstone, and we should read the story as the Jews right, arrive in Egypt. Yosef is in charge. And they 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 succeed. They they're they're fruitful. They multiply, and Yaakov dies happy, and then everything else goes wrong. But Yaakov dies happy, and Yaakov's life is a success. And it's what happens afterwards that is the problem. The other way of reading the story is that everything that happens, um, right, everything that happens to the Jews later, is an obvious consequence of what Yosef's actions are. And that Yaakov understands this. And therefore, Yaakov's last 17 years are not lived without trouble, right? You can't say Nistimukho Saratav, because Yaakov, in fact, sees exactly what's coming, and he tries to warn Yosef, even before he's actually dying, by telling Yosef, you need to bury me in, right, in Eretz Yisrael, but Yosef doesn't pick up the warning, and Yosef doesn't actually understand this until before his own death, he calls in his brothers and insists that he that he realizes it's too late for them to be taken out of Mitzrayim, but he at least tells them that someday you'll leave Mitzrayim and you need to take me you need to take me out of it. So it turns out that the right if this is correct, right, that really there's a very powerful um, interpretation hidden in the question of whether our parsha starts in the right place or whether it starts or whether it's uh, really it starts in the wrong place and it's supposed to have started one parsha one pasuk earlier. Um, and the orthography is meaningful, and the, it's intended to force you, to, and the choice of where the Parsha ends is intended to force you to read against the Pshat. Uh, and my own bias is that um, you can read it as, you can read it um, two ways, right? You can read it, right? So you can read it, one, one, one way is read it unambiguously the way that we have it. Parsha Vayibhi begin, is, tells us the true story, and then it's really happy. You can read it the way Rashbam seems to read it, which is that Parsha Vayibhi is just a popular, uh, is just a concession to popular emotions, and the real way of reading the story is that, um, right, is the, sorry, is, is um, but really, that Parshat Vayechi, starting where it is, is just a concession to a pop, right, to popular concessions, but really the shot is that the story is about the capstone of Yaakov, because it begins one Pesach earlier, uh, or you can read it that they're both meanings, are, both readings are meaningful, the reading which which uh, the way the parsha we have it, which even though Rashbam thinks it's supposed to be happy, turns parsha's vayichi into a story about death and um, and depression and the right and the way um, in which you would read it if you didn't have it that way, which is that parsha's vayichi is a success because everything in Egypt is happy uh, until right until after Yaakov's death, but Yaakov's death life itself is happy, or you can read it one other way, which is to say that there's a havbin and a maskana, and um, you might think you would right the way the way you initially read it without the partial break is to think that it's a success, and the partial break is designed to force you to go back or to make you or better yet even to make you realize as you finish partial vayigash that um, that the the underlying shot right that there can be both can be true in a sense because Yaakov could have lived immediately happily because everything was great, but he's aware that that happiness is shadowed. And that ties into the whole theme that Yaakov throughout his life, even when he's alive, he's constantly being shadowed by the prospect of death. I prefer the reading that the purpose that um, the purpose of the Parsha break is to force us to confront the gap between what Yosef did to the Egyptians and what um, and what he was doing for the Jews, and that that is not praised, and therefore that we have to read the apparent success of Yaakov in light of his recognition 
that something is going wrong in Egypt, which is embodied in his demand to be buried, to Yosef to be buried in Israel, and that we see that Yosef finally gets the lesson at the end of um, at the end at the end of Sefer Bereshis when he insists on being buried. And if one wishes to draw morals, which I don't usually do, right, one could say that um, that there is a value to success in Chutzlaretz, but one has to always has to be careful that the value of that success in Chutzlaretz is not engaged in a way which makes one indifferent to the um, to the right to whether there is justice in the chutzlars you're living in because if, it, if your success turns out to be at the price of other people uh, who are being treated treated, un, treated treated unjustly it's unlikely to end up well I right, thank you very much for uh, I guess I lectured more than I expected to I Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.